0: Hello and welcome to the political party this episode features Blair MacDougall, who ran the better together campaign to keep Scotland in the UK in 2014. This is an exceptional lesson in strategy everything he thinks about is strategic I know strategy gets overused in politics and in management but he really thinks carefully about every issue and how to respond to it it's fantastic before I come on to that Thank you for all your messages about the Neil Kinnock episode. I know I said at the start of that it was emotional and so many of you have been in touch on Twitter and over email to tell me how much you loved it. Um, You can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. That was... I mean, there's so many of these like, oh, what a special night. What an amazing guest. And of course, it's always true. But it was particularly special. So if you haven't listened to that yet, you do need to go back and listen to it. And thank you to all of you who've been coming to see me on tour. I record this... Uh, the day after the Newcastle gig, which was just absolutely just such a pleasure and a privilege. It's just so exciting being out on the road again and performing in these amazing venues. Um, and the tour continues uh, across the northeast in Annick, I think I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> and uh, Hexham. And then on the 23rd of March, I mean, Maidstone, the 24th of March, Norwich. I've never played it before on tour. I'm coming to the Playhouse. Friday the 25th of March, Cambridge. Monday the 28th, Edinburgh. Monday the uh, Tuesday the 29th, Edinburgh. Two nights at the Edinburgh Stand. And Wednesday the 30th, Glasgow. Thursday the 31st, Leicester. Friday the 1st of April, Northampton. And loads more of the places as well, including Bath, Brighton, Eastleigh. Um, for the Cambridge, Glasgow, uh, two Edinburgh gigs. I don't think there are many tickets left, if any. I think a couple of those have already sold out. Um, so do check matford.com. Um, for all the latest tickets. Uh, And of course, you can get tickets to come and see this show live, The Political Party, and the next couple of guests are incredible. Tom hats on Monday the 21st of March, the first declared candidate in the next Tory leadership race, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, a mega talent. Two weeks after that, Foreign Office Minister James Cleverly was on the show a few years ago, one of the best guests I've ever had on, a very funny man. And of course, what a phenomenal time to have a Foreign Office Minister on. Talking about Ukraine the uh, release of Nazneen Zaghari Ratcliffe. Um, So lots to talk to James about. And he's a very funny man. Monday the 11th of April is the rescheduled Christmas special with Rosanna Allen-Kahn and Jacob Reese mogg On Monday the 18th of April, Rosie Duffield, who's a just a hero to so many people, is on the show. A few more guests to book for some of the other slots, but on Monday the 16th of May, it's Lisa Nandy. On Monday the 13th of June, it's Gary Neville. And on Monday the 27th of June, it's David Davis. But keep checking mattford.com uh, for the latest announcements on my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford. So on to today's guest, Blair McDougall, who I've known for a long time and have always been in awe, really, of his political intelligence and political judgment. I'm one of those people that just seems to possess such a composed political brain. Someone who can always see the traps in any one argument, someone who doesn't always accept the framing of a, an argument and, and is able to reframe debates and understand how opponents, who often seem uh, undefeatable, uh, have weaknesses and knowing what they are and how to exploit them. This really is, and not just a great inside story of the 2014 referendum campaign from the No side, from the Better Together side, and why they used Better Together and all. That. I mean, just this is absolutely full of diamonds and gems of political, just genius. Um, but also just challenges some of the um. Is orthodoxy the right word? Certainly some of the the narratives that others might want to place on current politics and just challenges some of those assumptions that perhaps sometimes we're all guilty of making. So this is a real treat. Enjoy, Blair McDougal. Blair, there's so much we have to talk about. It would feel weird, I think, if we probably didn't start with 2014 and the referendum campaign. Um, sure. And maybe it's best we get that out of the way. Um, how do you feel about going back and reflecting on the the uh, the events of eight to ten years ago? Um,
1: it's it's weird because for me it's simultaneously something I'm very proud to to have been part of. I'm I'm incredibly proud that um, Scotland. Almost uniquely in the world, in the last decade, was given a given a kind of you know nationalistic populist uh, option and, and 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 said no thanks to it. And I think that's a pretty pretty remarkable thing which I I take great great pride in. At the same time, this was something which I was involved. I think I was working in the campaign for about a thousand days. This was a, an absolute <sighs> mammoth campaign, and this stuff has almost nothing to do with what I care about in politics. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, I think as a consequence of the decision in terms of, you know, what it means for, for jobs, for the, the funding of public services, it, it, the consequences of it are incredibly important. But issues of, of nationhood and identity and, and 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 flags and all this sort of stuff, I just, I could not care less about. And and more than that, I thought that these sort of constitutional arguments are just such a, such a distraction from what for me felt like the important things in politics so i have a very kind of mixed feeling towards it as i say partly uh, partly pride and partly my god what a lot of energy went into that and is still going into it, uh, <laughs> over enormous periods of time and and for what you know it's uh, uh, yeah so I've, i i have mixed feelings on it um, i mean it was certainly a it was certainly a visceral experience and certainly an experience that i think i came out of a lot, a lot tougher and a lot wiser, um, as a result of. Um, but uh, yeah, scar tissue, L- almost literally scar tissue. I, ca- I came out of the, um, I came out of the, the referendum campaign quite ill. I mean, if you, if you go back and look at, um, if you go back and look at look at footage of me on television, particularly in the last, the last sort of year of the campaign, I become progressively greyer. And I thought that was because lack of, you know, lack of sleep, uh, poor, poor diet, and because I, I uh, my wife and I had two kids in the course of course of that campaign as well. Um, but I discovered afterwards, I had, a, I had a weird growth inside me that was bleeding. And so I was, I was sort of, sort of anemic and, and terribly ill. <laughs> um, so it was only only after the, 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 that was all done with that I, I sort of got an operation, had it fixed. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a kind of extraordinary, extraordinary campaigning experience.
0: It must have been, uh, you alluded to this really, the Better Together campaign was engaged in the, the referendum reluctantly. It didn't want the referendum in the first place, but you're effectively forced into it by David Cameron doing the deal with Alex Salmond, which I guess, you know, you can, I can understand the democratic legitimacy of having it, but nevertheless, this is the SNP's raison d'etre it is not yours. And yet here you are forced into this very, very intense war that you didn't even want to fight. I mean, mm. how do you deal with that? I mean, I guess once you're in a fight, you're in a fight and you, you know, you fight it like you would any election campaign in the context, you, you become up for it because such a big thing is at stake. But if it's one that you don't want to have, does that present any challenge at all to you as an individual or, or to the coalition that is fighting against independence?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it presents a challenge in terms of um, motivating and mobilising your own side. Um, so, for for a long period in our campaign, we didn't have a lot of money at all. Um, towards in toward the last few weeks of the campaign, we actually had to shut down our our, our fundraising because we were getting getting too much in. But um, like you say, this for for most people on our side of the cause, um, this was not an animating. Um, kind of cause uh, for why they were involved in in politics or, or public life of of some sort. For um, some on our side, it was for some on our side um, who would define themselves as unionists, who would who would you know probably fairly be, be described as nationalists of a of a different stripe. Um, this this was an animating thing for them. And, and, and I think that tribe has grown. You see them much more on social media now with kind of union flags on the, on their, their, their accounts and things like that. Um, the problem is those people were just as divorced from from where kind of middle Scotland was on this issue as the as Scottish nationalists were. Um, and so for us, how do you run a campaign when the people on your side who are most animated um, about it, um, are, are kind of maybe maybe dragging your campaign away from the arguments that that would win it for you. So I think the challenge for us wasn't wasn't just about uh, motivating ourselves. It was also about how do you have the discipline um, not to accept the frame that this is a battle of identities. And that's what we had to fight against the whole time to say that this wasn't actually a debate about where are you Scottish or where are you British? You know, it wasn't Alex Salmon v. V. David Cameron. It was about what type of Scotland were we going to be, what type of Scot were we going to be? Were we going to be the type of Scot that walks away from a friend or where we're we going to stay united? Um so I think that was important. Um, and that was a challenge. I think the other thing I'd say is. There was an opportunity. As much as that was a challenge, there was an opportunity hidden hidden within that because those voters in the middle, for whom um, this—I mean—they—they—they they, they, they shared, I guess, my my feeling towards the whole process, which was they felt anxious that we were having this this debate at all. Um, they felt doubly anxious because they understood that because it was a referendum, this was on their shoulders. This wasn't like you know. You, you make a wrong decision in an election, and then you blame blame the politicians for it. In five years' time, this is this was on you um, as a as a Scottish citizen. Um, and so that feeling of anxiety they had was was really at the the heart of the the sort of strategic decisions we made very early on in the campaign. Um, we used to talk about ourselves as the and campaign. You'd say they were the or campaign. They were saying you had to choose between working with your neighbours or making decisions yourself, you have to choose between British or, or, or being Scottish. Um, and we were saying you could be both. Um, and when you have people who are anxious about the choice that, that's being uh, presented to them, if you are the people who are able to remove that feeling of anxiety by saying, look, this doesn't have to be an exclusive choice, then that gives you a huge, a huge advantage. So in a way, the things that made it a painful process for me um, and for all of our, I think most, almost all of our team felt, felt similarly uh, within the campaign was also at the heart of, I think, why we, why we in the end won.
0: So let's go right to the start then. How do you get involved? Does David Cameron ring you up? Um, well, for, for me, so what was I, I? I was running,
1: you know, living wage campaigns, teaching communities how to uh, how to campaign for better housing. I was, I was. Uh, my wife was uh, six months or so pregnant um, with her first child, which we'd waited a very, very long time uh, to 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 come, and. Uh, Jim Murphy, who was kind of my closest pal in politics, had said to me, "Well, you know this this is coming up, and someone needs to run it." I'd sort of said to him, "What?" Well, similar to what I said to you, which is, "It's not really, it's not really my my thing." Um, then I think Douglas Alexander spoke to me as well. Uh, then Jim came back to me, and it, it, you know what it's like. I mean, you've worked with politicians eventually. They flatter you into believing that you have that you are you are uniquely placed to help them do the thing that they're asking you to do. Um, and eventually, I thought, okay, I will I will do it. And and uh, spoke to Alistair Darling, spoke to um, uh, the brilliant and- Andrew Dunlop, who's kind of the unsung hero of the, the referendum campaign, who was uh, David Cameron's um, kind of Scottish advisor. Um, uh, spoke to Ruth Davidson, and and and, and eventually. Um, was was kind of given given the go um, then quit quit my job went uh, moved back home to Glasgow um I say back home moved with my heavily pregnant uh wife into uh oh actually no we'd had the baby then uh but moved my, my wife my wife and my infant daughter into my mother-in-law's house and proceeded to uh, establish the campaign on my credit card because um, I think one of the I think one of the questions I'd asked when when I agreed to do the job was there, there, there's funding here right this is a this is a real campaign and, and, and remember we didn't know for sure that the referendum was going to take place because the negotiations between the government hadn't happened the date hadn't been set and so it was a, l- a little bit of a leap of faith um, the funding the funding that was promised didn't really arrive until the date was set and the referendum was. Uh, was established and so um yeah it was it was it was a little bit a little bit high high wire I, I how to say the good the good the good thing about if if in cam, if in campaigns you are willing to be entrepreneurial like that if you are willing to be the person that takes a risk and and sets things up the flip side of that 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 risk is that you get the opportunity to 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 shape it how you want it to be um, and uh uh, you know having having as i say paid largely paid for the launch of my credit card that gave gave us the opportunity to to make it the the beast that we thought um uh, was most likely to actually win uh, the campaign
0: obviously i totally understand i think most people would that um you have things in common with people in different parties on single issues hmm. to some people it feels very odd and it must have on some level felt odd for you as someone who until the constitutional debate in Scotland had kicked off, really, most of your political life working, as you had done for Labour cabinet ministers, the opposition had been the Tory party. I mean, really, in the time that you grew up, it was Labour versus the Tories. And then here you are, in the rapidly changing context of British politics, working with a Tory prime minister and phoning Ruth Davidson for advice. I mean, at any point, did that feel a bit weird? Or had you just rapidly adapted to, to the new world?
1: Um, it, felt, it felt weird all the time, um, not, just, not just working with the Conservatives, working with uh, 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 you know, Liberal Democrats who have very particular very <laughs> particular culture as a party, um, uh, and trying to keep together uh, uh, a Scottish Labour Party, which was at that point, I think, pretty deeply divided between um, uh, Westminster and, um, uh, and Holyrood. I think what helps me is, or what helped me in that situation is, I come from the the tradition in the Labour Party that seeks um, converts rather than traitors. So, I kind of believe that in, inside every every Tory, Lib Dem, or Nat, there is a there is a Labour person trying to get out, and you just have to you have to find the right argument and the right um, uh, 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 the, the right way to persuade persuade the Labour person to come out. So. Um, so I don't kind of, you know, I, 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 I don't necessarily start from a, from a position of believing that there is uh, incompatibility uh, from people uh, from other sides. And I should say as someone, someone who, you know, has spent a lot of time fighting against the SNP, I think one of, the, one of the great pities about Scottish politics is that there's a lot of people who I think are genuine social Democrats um, and democratic socialists who are attached to a project um, which which is actually a distraction from from, from, from their values and, and, and people for whom I think I probably have quite a lot in common with if you take take this sort of one question um, uh, uh, off the table.
0: And this, that was the under you know one of the many subtexts to the whole debate was the the imminent collapse of Scottish Labour, which you win the referendum in twenty fifteen, then in tw- in twenty fourteen, then in twenty fifteen the tide goes out. I mean, I know, it's so hard now to I know, to look back in retrospect, but in, in 2014, having won, and with all the conflicted feelings you must have had about that, obviously immense mm. relief, but forces had been unleashed in Scotland that really have not been tamed since. Did you see the destruction of Scottish Labour coming in quite a spectacular way? So what I'd say to that is... Um,
1: I think, I think in the history of that, in the history of the decline of, of Scottish Labour, what's been forgotten is that we lost a catastrophic landslide defeat in 2011. Like that's, that, that was why the referendum was taking place. Yeah. Um, the other reason why the referendum was taking place is that over a long period of time, there had been a failure, um, and I think that failure is still there, um, to articulate a narrative of Belonging and solidarity across across the United Kingdom, right? So the forces the forces which which sort of washed over my party in Scotland were longstanding. Um, they were just, uh, I think, brought to um, uh, they were just accelerated maybe by 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 twenty fourteen. Um, I think I think there are two two things I'd say about that. I think there is a tendency for Scottish Labour and it goes all the way back, I think, to 2007, and even even before that, when, when we first uh, lost, to accept that what the SNP say about us as a party is well-meaning advice given by a friend rather than a, a deadly enemy trying to frame the polit- political debate in a way which is as damaging for you as is possible. So every time they uh, uh, erect a frame, um, uh, and you know, back in twenty eleven, it was um, people are turned off by Labour criticising the SNP, and we sort of we when they said that we went, oh gosh, well we should we should stop stop criticising the SNP. Um, but over over a period of time, and 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 it was as I say, accelerated by the referendum, but it was there beforehand. There was a failure of of, of strategy. Uh, from Scottish Labour, a failure to articulate a clear purpose for the party. Um, and I think that goes all the way back to um, the early days of devolution, when we came to power with very clear plans in terms of, you know, uh, land reform and, 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 and these projects that had been neglected because um, the devolved parliament didn't exist. What we didn't do is establish a kind of governing narrative that went beyond the kind of un undone tasks that, that devolution was established um, to set up and so I think when that when that wave came after the referendum when the the, the incredibly potent and powerful frame of of nationalism kind of overtook us we, we we were kind of we were naked we didn't really have anything to to defend ourselves um, with um, and all the way through um, the referendum campaign you could see the SNP had a post-referendum strategy. They had this this message of how uh, Labour had betrayed its values, how Labour, um, this phrase of, I didn't leave the Labour Party, the Labour Party left me, was what you would hear over and over again. And that was about trying to erode the base of Labour. So they thought to themselves, if we can, we might not be able to win this referendum, but what we can do is destroy Labour as a a potential governing force in Scotland. and I think from the other side, from my party, um, we contributed massively to, to Better Together to the, to the, um, the, the pro-union kind of cause. But what we didn't have running through our own activities was a post-referendum strategy for ourselves. The Tories, on the other hand, busily organizing under Ruth Davidson uh, through things like Labour Friends of the Union, they organized a base, a pro-union base, they had exploited that um, maybe 25%, 30% of the population who do have that strong British identity. And they created almost like a mirror image of the SNP's um, uh, kind of campaign campaign base, which eventually ate into, uh, ate into us even after 2015. We started not only to lose votes to the SNP, we started to lose votes to the Tories in, a, in, in the kind of binary political landscape that had been created. So I think I think the lack of a plan um, was was a huge part of that, um, and I think we're only now really coming to grips with the need to have that strategy. I think Anas is, is is only now sort of beginning to ask those those questions about what is it Scottish Labour is for, how do you navigate this this very divisive uh, landscape, um, and it's not easy. I mean i i worked for I worked for a couple of previous um, Scottish Labour leaders and. Uh, you know, I failed and they failed to to, to do this job because um, uh, it's it's really tough to fight
0: against nationalism. Just thinking of a, the pre-referendum world, and from from devolution to 2014, what should Scottish Labour's narrative have been then in that empty place? What what should they have done? And and should it have been? Obviously, the Union Jack is seen as shorthand. Yeah. I understand why some people use it. it. It just fighting flags with flags doesn't seem to me to be the greatest <laughs> in a way you you it feels like you're kind of accepting the frame. But what should Donald Dewar and others have done from the inception of the Scottish Parliament to, to perhaps help to quell those forces.
1: So I think I think um at an institutional level it was a mistake to create a uh, Um, A parliament without also thinking about how to create the supporting democratic infrastructure outside it. So um, we should have endowed several think tanks. You know, there's there's a real lack of that within the landscape, uh, providing any sort of 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 challenge to people. Um, uh, But I also think there's a kind of you ask about what the story we should have told is. um, The truth is that for a long time Scottish Labour had a soft nationalist argument ourselves. We used nationalism within our, you know, social democratic uh, uh, sort of master story that we told about ourselves. We did use nationalism as a way of um, hurting the Tories in Scotland. Um, And it was potent. And then somehow we were surprised that the SNP were able to do that as well. But the problem with that narrative was, and the problem with the narrative that that the SNP have grabbed and run with, is that it defines Scottishness in terms of what it isn't rather than what it is. It defines Scottishness as we are not Boris Johnson, we're not Brexit, we're not this, that or the other. What it doesn't say is we are friendly, we look after each other, we have um, a certain set of values. And I think that matters because it becomes a rule book against which you test yourself rather than self-complement. there is a there is a conceitedness to Scottish politics, that we are more socially democratic, we are more committed to social justice, we're more compassionate, we're less racist um, than these terrible people down south. And What that means is that we spend time congratulating ourselves rather than confronting all of those things in Scottish society. Uh, We don't uh, don't recognise that while we're congratulating ourselves for being morally superior, we are cutting the guts out of um, education for poorer kids, or we are awarding things to middle class people like me while we're cutting the services for the poorest people um, in Scotland. And so I think that's, that to me is um, uh, at the heart of, of, of Scottish Labour's problem, is not telling that story about what Scottishness is uh, and what it means to be modern Scotland so that we could hold ourselves to that standard rather than complacently and in a kind of self-righteous way just saying we're not them. We're not them and we're better than them that has to be about being in opposition to something that is inside Scotland rather than something that's outside Scotland.
0: As new Labour people, we're told never to blame the public. Yeah. When you have a government whose record is unspectacular at best... At best, (laughs) yes. At what point does political gravity catch up with a First Minister who has presided, as you say, I mean, in education, the same algorithm that Gavin Williamson used, on... Drug deaths, a, a terrible record. Uh, that the first minister admitted they'd taken their eye off the ball. I mean, on any measure, it's not a social democratic government. At what point does Scotland, the Scottish public, start to judge the SNP on their record, or or is or, or effectively because Labour has until recently been a basket case and still has a long way to go in Scotland and in the rest of the UK plus having a Tory government in Westminster, plus Brexit, plus Boris, really can they get away with anything?
1: You, sit, you talk about not blaming the electorate, and I, and I think that's really important because the reason the SNP get away with, with the you know, catastrophic failures um, uh, in government is for one reason only, and it's because Scottish Labour haven't been good enough. We are way past the point where people are voting for the SNP out of a sense of enthusiasm. You know, there's like 25% of the population who are existential nationalists who will always vote for them um, because for them the, the constitutional question is more important than whether their train turns up, their ferry is running, their kids are taught how to read and write. Right? They will always, they will always vote for them regardless of that. Um, but then there's, there's, there's that kind of middle Scotland who vote for them because they see them as the only people who can walk and chew gum you know they're crap in government but they are able to look like a governing party they're able to you know field a team of people they're able to to control the 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 news agenda um until there is an alternative and the alternative will never be the Tories in Scotland they will at best uh, uh, command a similar kind of minority of the population. Um, the only party that can build that coalition, running across yes and no, running across different uh, uh, different interests in society, will be the Labour Party. Um, but the entire governing uh, aim of the SNP is to kill Labour. I mean, that's been their entire strategy for for twenty five years. It's just to kill the Labour Party. So they'll keep doing that. They'll do that now. Now, they, now they're able to do that, not only through their own efforts, they're able to do that because they're in, um, and I thought Keir Starmer got this right in his speech recently to, to Scottish Labour conference, he talked about um, uh, the Conservatives and the SNP in Scotland as being in a symbiotic relationship with each other. For so as long as we have this, this dead kind of zombie debate on the constitution rolling on and on, they get to shout at each other and wave flags at each other and make this a, a tribal war of identities. And us in the middle talking about, you know, unimportant issues like, you know, our people being treated for cancer and, you know, our children living in poverty are completely crowded out of, of, of the debate. Um, now, par- partly that's because we've not been good enough, we've not been professional enough, we've not had the, 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 the bigger story that, that I spoke about a minute ago. I think in modern politics, um, and I think this is something Keir Starmer is is, is maybe finding as well in in UK politics, is you don't have the same shared experience of politicians that you once had. Keir Starmer in many ways is the first generation of leaders who have come to power without people watching them on the six o'clock news. People just don't, apart from from us all watching Ukraine in the last uh, few weeks, um, we don't watch the telly together. We don't have shared experience of people. So it's incredibly difficult to cut through. And so I think the challenge for Anas and for the, the, the Scottish Labour Party is in that context, how do you begin anew? How do you rebuild without having those moments of breakthrough, without having those shared moments? And I think it's incredibly difficult. Um, I think what he's done so far, which I, I I think is exactly the right judgment, is he seems to be in Hollywood for a day a week, and then the rest of the time out in the country just talking to people. And I think that's that's what he has to do. I think this is building from the foundations up stuff. I really do.
0: And with with Labour, I mean, is it as simple as Scottish Labour can only do well when Labour could conceivably form a government in Westminster? Or can Scottish Labour do well without that?
1: Um, I think it's certainly true. I don't, well, I don't know whether it's true that we can't do well unless Labour does well across the UK. I think it's certainly true when Labour isn't doing well across the UK, they're a drag on the ticket. I think that's absolutely true. Um, uh, and I think there will, there will have to come a moment of... maybe like a sort of tipping moment where it's clear that there is an alternative route to change for, um, you know, social, social democratic kind of mid, middle Scotland voters, um, that there is an alternative project for change. And that, that does come within the, you know, within the debate about the constitutional settlement that comes when um, it's clear that, that Labour is, is in the running to, to form a government. In the devolved context, there's no escaping that we need to be better. We need to cultivate our talent. We need to recruit new um, uh, new spokespeople um, across the board. Um, and we need to have a, a more compelling story to tell. So it's not, it's not good enough for us just to blame the UK party. Um, you know, when there have been moments of recovery since 2007 for uh, the UK party, it's not been shared uh, by the Scottish party. So we've got to take responsibility for that.
0: How urgent does this feel? Because... The First Minister is, exists in a permanent state of promising a, another referendum in two years' time. You know, can look back at all the headlines from 2014. Um, And you could see how there may be circumstances in which that happens. Dispassionately, does it feel like they have missed their moment? Or does it feel as if, though, you could have another referendum at any point? I don't think we're going to have another referendum anytime soon. Um...
1: That doesn't mean that the debate isn't important. Um, it doesn't mean that it's that we should that those of us who oppose the break of the United Kingdom shouldn't make sure that our arguments are properly equipped. But whether whether they've missed their moment or not, and I think I think there's an increasing feeling I think inside the SNP that they may have missed their moment. Um, Cert- they certainly certainly don't feel like a, a cause which knows what it is for anymore so and in, in mm-hmm. I, I talked about it as a, zomb- a zombie kind of cause and, I, and and that's what it feels like so in in 2014 they had this really neat kind of three stage argument for for their their um, uh, campaign and it was about scotland should no scotland can scotland should and scotland must be an independent country. So the, the can part was about saying, look at our economic figures, look at the public spending numbers, um, we can afford to do this. The Scotland should part was about having like a retail offer. It was saying to people on the basis of that, those finances, we can afford to do things that you like on childcare, on welfare, on, on whatever it was. And then the final part was Scotland must, which was look at those terrible, horrible Tories. Um, we must do this because we have to have to escape from them. And that, that, that argument, you know, I didn't agree with, but it was at least a well articulated effort of explaining what the project was for. And that's now completely absent. So the, the, the Scotland can part um, was back then was based on um, a year, much like the year we're living through now where oil prices went above $110 a barrel and therefore there was a, a windfall from North Sea oil taxes. Um, and so they built it on that, but since then that's completely evaporated, we've had, you know, kind of 10 years of, 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 of much, much lower oil revenues. And the people who were telling us that we had to escape the United Kingdom because of austerity, um, and that independence was a, a, a sort of s- a social democratic lifeboat from this terrible Tory uh, United Kingdom, now talk in terms of well the size of the Scottish deficit is such such that we can only tackle it with independence, you know. So they've kind of gone from being being Tony Benn to being George Osborne in the course of in the course of course of a few years, um, and that's you know if you are if you're I I don't know if you've right, if you're a right of centre kind of person you believe in small government then that argument might be attractive of of having a kind of more you know, fiscally autonomous and responsible Scotland, but it's certainly not the, the 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 sort of politics of what we've been what we've been offered. And then I think the the the, the other problem they've got is they are, you know, perfectly understandably using Brexit as a kind of animating um, moment or as an excuse for reopening um, the constitutional debate. Um, But they have no answer to the difficulties that Brexit throws up. So in 2014, their argument was about continuity as much as it was about change, it was saying don't worry, you'll still be EastEnders, you'll still be able to go across the border because we'll both be in the EU, you'll keep the pound. And all those things about continuity have have been dismantled um, since then, partly by Brexit and partly by them uh, themselves. And they've just not tried to answer these questions, they've not tried to say, okay, so we're not having a currency union anymore, what will we have? They've not tried to say how a hard border um, between Scotland and, and the rest of the United Kingdom uh, would work. And so what you're left with is a cause that has, has really no animating purpose other than saying, look, you don't like the cut of Boris Johnson's jib. Um, and that, that'll motivate some people, but it's not enough it's not a uh, it's not a sort of deep narrative for the foundation of a new nation you know it's 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 it, f- it feels very shallow and very
0: hollow uh, from them at the moment why um, don't you th- one of the things that slightly baffled me is well a number of things but the the, the economic argument was their ultimate weak spot whether it hmm. was pensions whether it was currency you know it just there was no economic option better than the current deal that hasn't yeah. changed i'm sort of amazed that they've not i mean they had the sustainable growth commission for a bit but it looks like they've been that off they haven't it doesn't seem that they've done any serious work at all i mean is that just because they know the answer and it's effectively a waste of time or is it something else i mean i i i'm you know, in a way that you... It's two, that you, it's two uh, things,
1: I think. I think, first yeah. of all... I think the first is practical, which is the only credible answers that there are on currency or on the border or on public spending, which are the three big issues that they've, they, they really are struggling to grapple with, are deeply unpopular. Because you've got to say to people... Do you know what, there is going to be some form of harder border um, between uh, Scotland um, and England. Um, you've got to say to people there's either going to be tax rises or spending cuts um, in order to, to make the sums add up. Um, and you've got to say to people your currency is going to change, it's going to change to, you know, either a separate a separate currency that's unproven or to the euro, and those are unpopular options. And so, part of it is they're unwilling to tell those uh, unattractive truths to the to the electorate, um, and so they're finding themselves trapped in these kind of slightly ridiculous positions that, that are very familiar from from the Brexit debate, you know, around smart borders and you know you can <laughs> all the kind of cakeism that we saw then um they've got this ridiculous policy of maybe 10 years where Scotland would be the only advanced economy in the world not to have a currency of our own, not to have a central bank sort of as an insurance policy um And then on the public spending argument they're sort of they're sort of scuttering around, looking for ways to make things add up and and they're becoming increasingly ridiculous. So they've they've talked about cutting defence spending, which maybe looks a little bit foolish in, in light of recent events. Um they've spoken about uh, this wheeze that somehow Scotland would be the only nation in the world that wouldn't have to pay for its pensions because taxpayers in the rest of the UK would do it. And that that seems to have uh, maybe, maybe now being disowned as an idea. They've talked about disowning their share of uh, the UK's debt, none of which kind of take you to a place of reassurance if you're an undecided voter. They all, they all sound a little bit uh, either too good to be true or a little bit uh, 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 risky. Um, so I think that's the first thing. The first thing is they're trying to avoid giving answers that they, they know um, are unpopular. I think the second reason is more deep, which is, um, I think, behind why they, why they lost in 2014. For the undecided voter in the middle, these economic questions are the question. For the SNP, I think in 2014 and still today, these practical questions about people's you know, standard life, about the what it does for public services, what it does to the economy, um, those are things to get through. So that they can talk about what they're really interested in, you know, which is the kind of the magical, you know, journey of uh, possibility that comes from nation building, which is which is fine if you're a nationalist, you know, it's a legitimate thing to, to have as your political cause, but it's just not where the kind of middle ground of Scottish politics is. Um, And so I think, fundamentally, one of the reasons they don't really devote much Intellectual capacity, organisational capacity to answering these questions, is they're just not as interested in them um, as as the people in in, in the middle of Scotland um, are. Um, and so, so I think you've got a you've got a mixture of questions that can't be answered and questions that they, they they just can't be bothered to answer because they don't understand why people care about these things and why people are not
0: willing to sacrifice more to to run the flag up the pool on, on Independence Day. Is the challenge to people on your side that middle Scotland might be changing? Obviously, what the Yes campaign, what the SNP would say is, young people overwhelmingly support independence, and in time, that delivers a majority. Now, some might ask why in the last eight years it hasn't pulled through in the polls yet, mm. um, but perhaps given Boris Johnson, Brexit, other things, Nicola Sturgeon's relative popularity, do you think actually... Those issues that you described become less relevant to a new Middle Scotland in the next five to ten years. So, the first thing I'd say on the the, the demographic thing
1: is we, we heard a lot of that in twenty fourteen, and the post referendum study suggested that um, actually the yo- youngest voters um, voted to stay in the United Kingdom. You know, as did the older voters, and then there was there was more of a more of a split um in in the middle um, for me the remarkable the remarkable thing is i think i think yes the snp clearly believe that time is a strategy for them that they can kind of wait out the union um, but we've you know we're, we're several years past 2014 and the polls aren't really shifting and the polls aren't really shifting decisively despite multiple crises you know we've had crises of political legitimacy you know going right the way back to um the expenses scandal um we've got the the self-inflicted crises around brexit and the political crises around uh, brexit we've got a uh, prime minister who um is the, the the best recruiter for scottish scottish nationalism um and the polls aren't shifting um and i think part of the, the, the way the SNP talk about the inevitability um, of independence. Um, for them, that's not really analysis. That's not really honest analysis. What that is, is framing. What they're trying to do is to say that Scotland is on this irreversible journey to leave the United Kingdom. Um, and I remember, I think I think it was sort of forty hours after the 2014 referendum, I did a, an interview sort of reviewing the campaign, um, with my opposite number, the, the chief exec of the of the Yes campaign, and he was already talking about the next referendum, having you know been forty hours away <laughs> from having having just lost the last one by eleven points, um, and so for them, um, they they cannot conceive of a Scotland that does not um, uh, choose at some point to leave the union um and for me that that's that's a source of great encouragement because if you believe your cause is inevitable if you believe you're destined and fated to win it means you don't actually address those difficult questions we've just been talking about you 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 assume that things will just go your way um and so i'm perfectly happy for them you know to be reading the tea leaves while you know the rest of us are kind of reading economic analysis and stuff like that and, um, you know, and the, the, SNP, the SNP have this kind of phrase they always go back to that supposedly those of us on the other side of the argument think that Scotland is too wee, too poor and too stupid. I think in many ways they're the ones that think Scotland's too stupid. They, they think that Scots will vote for this irreversible political project um, without Asking these these difficult questions without being kind of rational skeptics, um, and the evidence so far is that that's not the case. That, that 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 Scots are just too canny to to sort of follow a kind of populist uh, project
0: without asking these skeptical questions. Too canny, too rich, and too. <laughs> well (laughs) there's something there's something in that
1: Uh, i may may steal that yeah
0: um take us back into better together then the phrase better together a really powerful phrase i mean you do Hmm. think if there is another one at any point do you use that again how do you improve on that and and when you came up with it were there any other alternatives that, that came close to being the final one
1: Better together. When we when we were testing with 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 voters, um, different names for for the campaign, um, it wasn't actually the one that tested the best. Uh, the one that tested the best was stronger um, together. Um, but we had a feeling that that was a little bit um, maybe I don't know aggressive, maybe male um and about two-thirds of the undecided voters were women um so we um we went for the went for the better together and stronger together line um because implicit in the the phrase better together is that things aren't perfect at the moment um uh, and there was a kind of philosophical thing under that which was we are not a campaign that believes that that political change is something that sort of happens at the snap of snap of your fingers it's a it's a difficult you know grind to make make change and so we wanted to acknowledge that 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 change needed to um, needed to happen so um that was where that was where sort of the phrase better together came from um, the the other thing about it was we knew that at some point we'd have to transition into being uh the no uh, campaign so we wanted we wanted the start of our campaign to feel like the start of a sentence that we 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 later finished with with no and so I think I think with was it was a hundred days to go uh, possibly maybe it was uh, maybe it was slightly longer longer to go than that when we transitioned um uh, the kind of phrase for that was no thanks we're better together so
0: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: Obviously, it was a, a, a victory by a significant margin, um, a, a decisive victory. There may have been times where <laughs> it looked as if that was going to be tighter than that. There's sort of wobble maybe a week or two out. Um, mm. But just thinking of perhaps, because even in victory, it's good to reflect on the things that went well and the things that didn't go well. One of the things that people said, and I felt unfairly in, in the aftermath of the referendum, was that you know the, the SNP side was very emotional, and the Better Together side was a kind of cool-headed, almost unemotional pitch for the union mm. and that it, it lacked the emotion. And people said that about the Remain campaign as well in, in in 2016. I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that, but as someone who was, you know, running it, do you think there's any any truth to it? Um, so I think I think
1: there were there was emotion on both sides. Um, I think when people say that our campaign was unemotional, what they often mean is that we didn't talk about Britishness the whole time. Um, and I think I think that's that's a fair criticism. We did not make our campaign about a sense of you know shared solidarity and and, and uh, uh, common uh, identity um, across across the United Kingdom. We didn't do that for a reason, which was that. We thought that we would lose, you know, we, we we did not want this to be a contest of Scottish versus British, um, because we believed that um, it was about both. It was about both. Um, and the key message of our whole campaign was that idea, that phrase, of the best of both worlds, which was partly... Um, it was an argument about um, you know you can have have stronger you know democratic decision making in Scotland without losing the opportunity and financial strength that comes of being part of a, of a bigger state. But there was that was also an identity argument. It was also saying to people, you do not need to choose between uh, feeling very proudly uh, and patriotically Scottish and being part um, of something bigger. And that to me was it was an emotional argument. Um, if only because, you were saying, I don't want politicians anywhere near my sense of, of, of national identity. I don't want some small kind of power hungry man telling me that I'm not Scottish um, because I choose to arrange my government uh, in a certain way with, with my neighbors. Um, and for me, one of, the, one of the most powerfully emotionally moment moments in the whole campaign was when Alex Salmon did Yes campaign that this really ill advised message towards the end um and in the, in the sort of late in the summer um, of 2014 um where they, they 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 asked people are you on team Scotland or not you know and that was the most explicitly exclusive message that they had they had used and people felt really angry um, at that um and I remember we had some um, Scottish uh, uh athletes who had represented represented Scotland at the Commonwealth Games, oh, and the Olympics this. and things, things like that. Scalimpians who, who were uh you know, for for, for 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 a lot of well, there was Skolimpians <laughs> earlier on, which is another <laughs> version of that, but um uh but uh, I don't know we, we had real trouble getting people to to stick their head above the parapet because there was just this kind of venom that would come your way um from 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 the kind of you know sort of mouth breathing Sort of people in their basements angrily tapping into Twitter, um, but on that we just we had no trouble getting these athletes to to come out and say that because people were genuinely really really angry. Um, uh, and so I think I think I think there was emotion um, on the other side. But um, what what as I say what I think when people make that criticism, as a strategist, what I hear is they are saying why didn't you fight on your opponent's territory? Because their opponents wanted this to be a, an emotional test. They wanted it to be a test of your national virility. You know, did you think we were good enough and all the rest of it? And for, 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 for most of us in Scotland, the question wasn't whether we were good enough. The question was whether it made sense, you know. And so um, in, a, in a way, um, the emotional argument for us was to say to people, um, you know, your Scottishness is not in doubt here. What is in doubt? is the project that's being put to you by these politicians.
0: If there is another one at any point, mm. is that still the same question? Um, so I, I I, think things. several things have changed and
1: se- several things remain the same. I think the challenge, if you are running a, a campaign to remain in the, the UK at the moment, is finding a language and getting comfortable with using the folly of Brexit as a cautionary tale rather than as a motivator for, for the yes side. Um, and that that would be very difficult. I think, I think politicians um, in all situations these days, they still play that game of trying to avoid the gotcha moment, you know, and, and wriggling in interviews and things like that, rather than leaning into and and reframing things that otherwise might be uh, a weakness uh, for for their side, and for me, the best argument against um, leaving the United Kingdom is the experience of dissolving, uh, you know, a much less integrated, a much more much less important in trade terms, much less important in 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 financial terms, um, union with 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 the Europeans. Um, much as I'm. You know was was a very, very uh, strong remainer. Um, for me, the, you know, dissolving the union between uh, uh, the UK and, and Scotland uh, would be far more complex and and, and damaging. Um, so I think I think there's an element of that. Um, and for me, it's not just about the outcomes there. I think part of um, part of the messaging around uh, the constitutional debate now, is about, uh, to use Scottish word, how scunnered people are with it. Um, So The Economist I saw had a poll um, the other day, um, and, you know, the clear majority of people either don't want this debate to ever come back or just don't want it to come back in the next five years. There's a kind of manana attitude to this. It's just like, just, just, you know, give us a break. We've had Brexit, we've had COVID, we've had... Um, you know, we've now got you know, war war raging across Europe. Um, people kind of want a quiet life. They 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 are kind of attracted, I think, after you know Boris and Trump and, and everything else and Salmond. Um, uh They kind of want just grown ups governing uh, for a while. Um, and so I think the, the the argument about how you know, and I think this is the experience of Brexit as well that this debate isn't a debate that goes away when you when you vote for it you then spend you know a generation unpicking things um and actually i think you've seen with brexit you you find it you're spending a generation rebuilding what you've lost um and so i think i think the the message of a quiet life i think is a, is a, is a big part of it now as well um, just
0: on brexit and that referendum as someone who ran a highly successful referendum campaign looking at the stronger in campaign yeah. could it have ever won it in the in at uh, the time that referendum was held what would you have done differently if you were running it
1: yeah. um it's difficult it's difficult because i i was i had some early conversations with them but I, you know i wasn't day to day in that campaign i don't know what the research was that that they had um and i was not, nothing but supportive of them because of Essentially, my experience of friendly fire and, and backseat drivers, and there was there was enough enough backseat drivers uh, in in that campaign. I mean, i i I felt I felt two things. I felt it lacked the strong leadership that our campaign had. Um, so we had to deal with so much crap that was thrown at us, both from the commentators, but also internally uh, from people who thought either. Either they were a bit sort of kind of bedwettery and thought we should be we shouldn't be being quite so negative, or they were kind of you know the real, real Britannia crowd who thought we should be waving the Union flag more, and and so there was a lot of internal criticism that we had to to deal with. Um, uh, and when I talk about strong leadership by the way, I don't mean me, I mean I mean Alastair Darling, who was kind of the tall tree under whom we sheltered, and he he absorbed a lot of that and allowed the campaign. Uh, to campaign um and I think the other thing I sort of thought as I was looking at them was that there was a sort of clearly an attempt to try to reframe away from immigration and towards economic risk um and i I sort of thought they should have spent more time talking about the economic risk of pulling up the drawbridge on immigration so it seemed clear to me there was, there was kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm ang- angry, uh, sort of dispossessed men in their fifties were, 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 drifting towards this. And it was on the basis of immigration. And, and I would have liked to have seen a stronger message, which said, well, you know, you, by all means you can shut the door, but who's going to pay for your pension? You know, we need, uh, people, um, coming to our country and contributing to the economy to grow and to um, uh, to be uh, to be more successful, I think I think what both referendums have behind them um, is that both both of the refer- referendums happened because of a crisis in the shared identity that people feel between um, or with with both unions um, and both suffer and and we still suffer from this in Scotland of there being a kind of perpetual campaign um to leave leave the union um and in Scotland what that means is you know you never really get the space to articulate that identity argument because then you move off of the the argument that actually wins the debate in the short term which is the economic argument Um, but for me, there is a. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a nationalist. But for me, the, the articulation of that argument is about pluralism. Is about sh- um, sharing your democracy uh, more widely. It's about uh, challenging the idea that people are uh, that that you, Matt, are so irreconcilably different from me that I can't share political institutions with you at all. You know, um, and I f- I felt that was the same with 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 Brexit that. You know, occasionally, um, you know, Tony Blair or whoever would pop up and try and make an argument about, you know, a kind of cosmopolitan argument about Europeanism. But really, we were so in the trenches all the time in the European argument because of the, the, the anti-European press that you kind of dug in, dug in on the, 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 the sort of more prosaic argument and you never really got the opportunity to build that that more attractive emotional argument on top, um, uh, and so I, I mean, I, I, to answer your question is, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the the, the feeling of connection to Europe was was too weak, and the the sense of economic risk and, and economic value wasn't as strongly felt as it was in Scotland, and so maybe, maybe that, it, you know, inevitably they were going to get washed away by the populist tide that that came everywhere else in the world um uh, but i as an outsider i would have liked to have seen more unapologetically combative messaging from them i would have liked to have seen them throwing more punches um, cuz they were they were kind of apologizing and there was like a kind of procession of procession of particularly labor people and loved people coming out and saying oh you know it's all a bit negative and all a bit well if you believe something's a bad idea you should have the confidence to say it really aggressively and it
0: was a really really bad idea obviously the phrase uh encapsulated in both referendums uh, is project fear mm. and it's interesting i think how that phrase being weaponized has actually come around to bite the people that weaponized it in 2014 yes. because it then gets used by vote leave in 2016 and all the stuff they said was Project Fear has started coming true, so those yeah. who uh, were dismissive of it, what was uh, and am I right in saying this? I think I read this in Joe Pike's book. Project Fear was an internal joke that was then seized upon and, and taken out of context.
1: Yeah, I think I think I think it, it was originally thrown at us by Cybernats, and I think became a you know self deprecating kind,
0: of, kind of kind of thing. Um, so actually, it originated outside the building. Then it it wasn't. It was initially yeah. used as an insult and then it was a sort of yeah, I think, badge I think, of honour and then thrown back in your yeah, face. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, um,
1: I think it goes back to, to, to what we were just talking about in terms of, um, you know, I, I, Bre- Brexit has to now be used as a way of rehabilitating um, sensible scepticism uh, to these, these, these nationalist projects. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, 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 the idea of just responding to any expert report or any, any, any concern that's expressed about the economics of, of dissolving a union with your largest trading partner um, uh, cannot now, off, in an offhand way, just be dismissed as scaremongering, as Project Fear, these things. That tactic has become devalued um, by politics in, in recent years.
0: just thinking of the campaign and and particularly Alex Salmond who obviously really weaponized that phrase, what was he like as an opponent? (sighs) Ruthless,
1: utterly ruthless. Um, uh, He was um, also useful. So we did these um, very large-scale Um, deliberative focus groups so you you would get you know 60 70 people who were drawn from what you believed were the undecided group in the middle and you would game out the whole campaign you would you would show them your your best messages that you thought you were going to close the campaign with you'd show them from different people you know uh, sometimes from you know female politicians sometimes from male uh, sometimes from one party sometimes from the other sometimes people who weren't politicians at all and you get people's reaction. But what you also do is you you play what you think is are, uh, videos of what you anticipate will be your opponents um, closing messages in the last few months. And you do it from their um, their, their best message carriers. Um, and because you know lots of those undecided voters, um, we believe were women, the majority of people in these rooms were women. And when Alex Salmon came on the television delivering his messages, women couldn't look at him. <laughs> Women would turn their turn head away. They sensed something was off about this guy. He reminded them of men in their life who had been patronising or who had been uh, treated them badly uh, in some way. There was a, there was a smell about him that they did not like. Um, uh, and I think the, the uh, from the outside looking at the yes campaign, I think they realised that. I think they there was a period where he kind of went to the background, and Nicola Sturgeon came to the, came to the foreground, which was I think an attempt to 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 deal with that. Um, but ultimately, he was always going to be the face um, of their campaign. Um, and I think one of the now many many great ironies about Alex Hammond's life. Um, uh, but the, you know this this guy who came to encapsulate their movement um, and who got them closer to their goal than any anyone was also the biggest drag on that on that cause. Um, so uh, yeah, he, you know, but he was utterly ruthless. Um, you know, journalists would would tell stories of how you know the first minister himself would phone up and berate them for. Um, for coverage, um, uh, you know, incredibly, incredibly tough uh, political opponent. Um, and uh, it was like, he's also, I, I mean, it's true to him. I think it's true to, true to nationalism more generally um, is that it's like, it's like fighting a monster in a horror film that every time you think you've driven the stake through the heart, every time you think, okay, they can't recover from that. You know, we, we've we just published a, a, a leaked document from John Swinney, which shows them saying internally that they believe that public services will have to be cut and that the pension isn't secure. How can they recover from that? Um, and then they sit back up in the coffin <laughs> and they're, they're, they're coming straight back at you again. Um, and it goes back to what we are talking about a moment ago, that for them, for them, this isn't really, at the end of the day, at the core of their belief about... analysis it's not for it's not for them a policy discussion you know for me independence is just a policy it's a decision of how do you choose to uh, share decision making with your with your neighbors and it's you know like any other policy it should be discussed and analyzed and debated for them it has magical properties um and because of that because of that faith and that belief um in the cause and in the magical properties of the cause they survive and are um, protected um, uh, in their own minds against any attack and will just, as I say, rise back up and keep marching towards you. And Samad was the the ultimate kind of example of that.
0: As a Labour man, are you surprised at how the SNP have effectively been able to wriggle out of ever having had anything to do with a man that led them for 20 years, that they made first minister, that the current first minister had heaped praise on and defended the character of for so long, even after that referendum, even when, from afar, it was clear, his tactics were appalling and the way that he treated people was terrible. How? I mean, is it just the things that we talked about earlier, the fact that their opponents in Scotland until fairly recently have been non-existent, how have yeah. there as a party been able to effectively go through the salmon thing and come out untainted?
1: And um, I think it, I think part of it is what we're just talking about in terms of it almost being a kind of religious um, you know, cause um where when uh, you know when a new doctrine is handed down by by the bishops, it's it's accepted gratefully and and without without any challenge. Um uh, I think there is an issue, there is an issue which is um, you know large numbers of people who described this man as their mentor and their closest friend and and the person who had taught them more about politics than anyone else um have now utterly disowned this man um but he still taught them everything they know he still defined their style of politics um uh and Again, it's, it's maybe to, to the advantage of the other side that, that that's true because it was a style of politics, that was ultimately um, unsuccessful. For me, the bigger question is obviously Alex Ahmed was, 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 was found not guilty um, of uh, in his trial. Um, but there were lots of things um, talked about around that, lots of things talked about in the parliamentary inquiry in terms of the culture within the Scottish Government. Um, you have ministers like Hamza Yusuf saying that, well, you know, maybe maybe we tolerated that culture because of the cause, because the cause was too good, too big. Um, and for me, um, yes, it's kind of it's kind of, it's kind of fun to remind the SNP that 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 this this person who's now an unperson um, uh, 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 was was the kind of defining character of their their movement for a generation. The real question for me is: none of the underlying issues that came through in that whole affair. been dealt with, none of them. There's been no accountability, there's been no um, uh, 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 review of the culture um, within the Scottish Government, you know. I mean if there were stories of David Cameron running around in his underpants in number 10, you know, um, regardless of the whether it rose to the test of criminality, and it obviously didn't in, in, in this occasion, there would be a really hard look. You know, you would have a former former permanent secretary coming in and doing a, a wholesale review of the civil service. You'd have all sorts of, of, of hard questions asked. And for me, that's that that's that's the thing that, that, that gets me, and that's the thing that, that suggests that Scottish Scottish politics is broken in a serious way, is we've kind of we, we once the drama, the Sturgeon Salmon drama was over, we kind of just moved on we've not we've not
0: asked what what actually went on there and is that because their political opponents think actually there's there's no point in going back over that you know if, if people were trying to keep it on the agenda it would be on the agenda is it that they just sent to the public actually aren't bothered um i i, I think that
1: the, there's a feeling there's a feeling of you know there, it, it, as a political issue it, it maybe ran its course um uh, so I think I think there's maybe an element of that, um, but as I say, for me this is this is less about the politics and the discomfort it causes, and more about whether some pretty you know worrying suggestions of a culture that that existed or you know maybe still exists um, just hasn't been hasn't been properly examined. Um, nobody at any stage in this whole affair has had any accountability, you know, um, uh, uh, and that to me is a is is it's a pretty dangerous thing.
0: Another element you had to deal with um, in 2014 was effectively it was the first major plebiscite in the UK that involved a fake news element, and, and, and in quite mm. a profound way, you had yes, campaigners, including people who are now SNP members of parliament delivering uh, a book by a guy called Wings Over Scotland, uh, a guy that yeah. now has been completely disowned. You had, it was yes. the first Another time- Another known yeah, person. Yeah, <laughs> you, you saw stuff like, it was the first time I'd ever heard phrases like the MSM, the mainstream media. Uh, it was yeah. the first time, paedophile conspiracies. I remember when Jim Murphy was attacked in the street and there was like anti-Zionist stuff and anti-paedophile stuff and that, that conflation mm. of all these different forces. That was on the streets of Scotland in 2014, years before Brexit, years before Trump, years before Corbyn. Why do you think that was the first time we'd seen that? Because obviously this is not unique to Scotland. Why was that the first yeah. time? And how do you, as, as the sort of official campaign, deal with stuff like that?
1: So I I think Scotland was, uh, in many ways, a kind of uh, Canadian in the, in the mineshaft for uh, world politics, lots of the things we saw in the following kind of, kind of decade um, all across the world, we saw first in Scotland. Um, why did we see that? I think partly um, the, that this was what supercharged the debate and brought out that, that venom was that this was an argument about identity um, and that we've seen that across the world, um, giving, uh, giving fuel to, to some pretty pretty ugly politics. Um, I think it's also that it was a referendum. You know that that when you have a binary question that says to people you're either in this tribe or that tribe, you can't be surprised when politics becomes more tribal. You know, um, uh, and one of the one of the huge takeaways for me from 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 having lived and lived and breathed the referendum campaign is how terrible a way referendums are of making decisions. You know, the idea. Uh, and we see, it again, with Brexit, the idea that um, if you can just get 50% plus one over the line for your side of the argument, it's a kind of winner-takes-all um, approach. And you see that you see that with Brexit, you know, the narrowest of victories um, leading to one of the more extreme models of, of what Brexit looks like when a rational results and a rational kind of, kind of negotiation after that result would have resulted in something like, you know, European Economic Area membership or, you know, a, a much more, a much softer form, form of Brexit. But because you're dividing people into these two tribes, the kind of inevitably the, 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 the extremes can kind of take over. I think another reason why it happens in the context of a referendum is because you're heading for 50% plus one, um, you, uh, there can be a tendency for campaigners to ignore the extreme elements on their own side because they believe there is no one they can throw um, overboard. Now, I think that's a mistake. I think that's a strategic error because actually, um, I mean, the, 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 people, the more extreme people on our side of, 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 of the debate, um, I mean, we, we happily threw um, overboard because we understood there was nowhere else for them to go. You know, they were, there was no problem uh, for us to, to, to sort of stick two, two fingers up to them. Um, but I think uh, I think you saw that in the Yes campaign. There was a kind of reluctance to to, to jettison those people. Um, I think you saw it and you saw it in the Labour Party um, under Corbyn as well. If you if you're if you're not reaching out to the middle ground, then you can't afford to throw away the people on 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 the extremes. Um, so I think I think I think part of it was we were. Um, uh, Part of it was timing. We were, you know, a, a very, very clearly a kind of identity-driven contest in the age of age of social media, and one of the kind of early early examples of that. And partly it was about the referendum in terms of how you deal with it. Um, this is something where I, m- my mind has changed a little bit um, over over the over the course of, of kind of the last decade. Um, so I used to I used to be kind of very strongly of the view that you. You can't find yourself playing whack-a-mole with every crazy thing that comes up on, on, on the internet because it distracts you and, and, and means that you are um, expending your campaign resources on talking about, uh, not even actually necessarily your opponent's message, but the, the craziest part of your opponent's uh, message. Um, that, my, my view slightly changed on that. Um, I remember we, we had a focus group and I um, I tended to try not to go to focus groups. Sometimes I did, um, but I, for whatever reason, I went to these focus groups and it was um, a professional group of people. So it was kind of lawyers and uh, accountants and people like that, teachers. Um, and it was a group we hadn't sort of um, particularly tested in a while. We just, we thought we'd do a kind of control group just to check where they were. And this guy who was an accountant in, in this um uh, uh in this focus group started talking about how there were secret oil fields um in the Firth of Clyde that were being hidden um by the british state um you know, just utterly ludicrous idea um but this guy would you know this was an educated guy this was a guy a guy a guy who does people's you know tax returns um and uh what in that discussion that occurred to me was that the credibility of a narrative of a story no longer came from it having been um, you know covered by the BBC or the Times or whoever, um, it came from the relationship you had with the person who shared it on social media. So if it was your friend who you trusted who shared this crazy conspiracy theory you know from some random blogger you were more likely to believe that the credibility came from your relationship on social media not from the credibility of the of the source um and that was kind of a terrifying (laughs) moment to be honest um and I think as a campaigner you I still believe as you know in terms of your central campaign you, you you cannot spend your time um, being distracted from your, your your central message, you've still got to be really really disciplined about that. But I think what you do have to do is equip people, um, uh, the sort of masses of your own campaign, with um, both the information and the skills um, to tackle that. I think we've seen, uh, you know, uh, with vaccine communications. Um, uh, uh, over the, the pandemic, um, it's not, you know, you you, you don't want to allow um, uh, a conspiracy theory not to be challenged. Uh, but if you negate it, you repeat it, and you give it more, more atmosphere. So what you've got to do is to find ways of discreetly communicating with people. Um, and that means, you know, peer to peer, it means one to one, rather than, Someone coming from above and squashing an idea because all that does is causes you to dig your trench more deeply and to to, to more strongly believe the ridiculous idea that that you've grasped. Um, so you've got to give people the information, but you've also got to teach them um, actually aggressively arguing with someone. It's probably not the way to deal with that. It's probably send your send that 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 crazy uncle on your Facebook feed. Uh, A a private message pointing out why what he said is completely unhinged rather than doing it in front of the rest of the family and friends, because then he'll just, you know, it becomes a performative thing where they want to argue with you rather than than roll back. You've got to give people space to recognise that what they said is a bit crazy and that will only happen, uh, as I say, peer to peer.
0: Thinking of post referendum Scotland and the politics of it, I mean, in the wake of the referendum defeat, you think, well, the SNP is still really popular. And uh, I, I remember thinking, well, you know, if I was them, I would just keep banging the drum. And yep. anything that goes wrong now, you say, we should have voted yes, we should have voted yes. Brexit gives them a huge opportunity to do that. Obviously, in the two years before that, when they thought we were going to remain, mm-hmm. they're finding all sorts of other reasons to do it. Actually, having watched them do that for eight years, I now think that was probably a mistake on their part, and they should have just chilled out a bit. <laughs> and yeah. they might actually be in a better place. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know whether had they been a bit less intense about independence in these intervening eight years, and the polling hadn't moved, whether they then go, God, you know, we should have really been banging the drum. But it does feel like if you just keep banging the drum and other world events are happening, that's an error that actually they should have yeah. got on with governing. And they might have been in a better position. I mean, I don't know if you talk to people in the SMP, I don't know if you have any insight into what their view of that is. Um, I
1: th- I think uh, I think you're right. I think um, you know, for example, the experience from Quebec of the the Neverendum, where people just became fatigued with it, um, and and in Quebec that you know that wasn't in the context of you know. Uh, multiple economic crises, pandemic, all the the other things, the Brexit that we've lived through that, that, as I say, have made made Scottish people even more kind of scunnered with the whole whole process. Um, I think they are slightly trapped by the fact that um, the the, the loss in the referendum um, was such an energising moment for their base, you know, and they suddenly, you know, 100,000 people joined their party. And those people did not join their party you know because the SNP you know in the small print of its constitution says that it is a, a social democratic party they joined because they wanted a rerun of the thing that 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 had just the, the defeat that had just wounded them deeply um so I think I think uh, it, there's a lot of that is as as the hangover from that influx of 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 activists um the problem they've now got is with the likelihood of Nicola Sturgeon kind of um, disappearing off to, to, to go and do something else um, uh, before the, the, the next Scottish Parliament elections. Um, that dynamic sort of plays out, I think, in the, uh, this what will, what will start to become a kind of long-running leadership campaign um, within the SNP. Um, and, you know, there is no incentive structure within that party to do what you just described. There's no incentive structure to say to people, do you know what, for the next 10 years, it's unlikely this is going to happen um, for all sorts of reasons. The electorate isn't moving. The way we make the case for, um, you know, full sovereignty um, is by uh, uh, proving uh, that we uh, can make a difference with the powers we've got by maybe maybe increasing uh, marginally the powers that, that we already have. There's no incentive structure for doing that. The incentive structure, the political incentive structure within the SNP is for how quickly can you have the referendum and how do you win it? And that's it.
0: Have they made another error, which is to not, I mean, I mean, I guess they're part of the same thing, but I remember the whole thing over welfare powers, where they effectively weren't mm. ready for powers they'd been calling for. And you thought, yes. "What? Well, this is incredible that this is your one. This is your this is your strongest suite, and your kind of yeah, yeah, It's the one thing you're meant to be able to do well. Is that actually in not using all the powers that they're you know. I guess they've made a strategic decision, which is we have to prove that we don't have enough powers, which yes. means not using all the powers you've got. Which means as a government, your record's not as good as it could have been. I don't understand yeah. why they've done that instead of you know running an amazing government with. I don't know if people don't like to hear it. The extra funding they get as a result of being in the UK.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the welfare powers, which are, you know, I think still still being constructed. Um, uh, what we're now five years after the, the date when we were supposed to have left the United Kingdom, the entire infrastructure of a separate state would have, would have been established. Um, uh, it goes back to something we said earlier on, there, there, is, there is a conceitedness to, to Scottish politics of we are more morally pure, um, uh, more socially democratic um, than those, those terrible Tories um, down south. Um, the reality is every party that's gone uh, into a Scottish election promising to raise taxes is lost. You know, we've had tax raising powers since 1987. The SNP fought an election um, saying that they would raise them. They lost. Labour fought an election saying they, saying they would do it um, and lost. Um, we have, um, within Scotland, through you know income tax powers, through uh, other tax raising powers, through welfare powers, um, through the running of public services, the ability to do redistribution. And we choose not to do it. We've done some very modest stuff with the, the Scottish child payment. Um, uh, but that is being funded not out of raising taxes, it's being funded out of cutting into things elsewhere. Um, uh, and I think sooner or later, whether, whether it's as an independent country or um, as a, a devolved nation within um, uh, the UK, we're gonna have to have an honest conversation with ourselves about whether the values we profess to have are going to be reflected in the political decisions that we take, and that's either going to have that's going to be a hard decision that we make in the context of you know the economics of cutting cutting public spending in an independent Scotland, or it's going to be within the context of the, the increased powers that we have. And I think that's one of the things that's changed. I mean, there's there's a headline uh, in the day that we're talking about um, how the uh, uh, the SNP has failed its child poverty target. Uh, you know, and in the past that would have been a discussion, you know, pointing the finger at Ian Duncan Smith or whoever, you know, uh, down south. Um, today, the, the, the question is, should they do more to increase payments to children living in poverty? Um, so that feeling of responsibility, I think, is creeping in um, uh, to Scottish politics, which is healthy, because I think in the end that does lead you
0: to a more honest assessment of what your values actually are as a country. You write a fantastic newsletter called Notes on Nationalism, a periodical kind of rebuttal mm. and, and strategy email about how these debates work and, and rebutting some of the stuff. It's brilliantly written. I genuinely think whatever side of the constitutional debate people on, people would just enjoy the writing and the quality of the thinking and the argument-making. But is part of the reason you're doing that because other people aren't? Um,
1: part Partly, yes. Partly, yes. I think there is a... Um, I spoke. We spoke earlier on about you know the what I feel is a kind of institutional weakness, um, and, and on the other side of the debate from 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 the SNP, it also frankly comes from. I mean, it's been it's been about. I mean, I still do lots of politics for for friends, and obviously I do I do kind of politics of a sort professionally, but it's been like five years now since I've been kind of really in the belly um, of the beast. And you know it takes you a couple of years to decompress, <laughs> to stop stop thinking that you know education questions are are the most important thing in, thing in the world, um, and then once you've decompressed, you start to you start to notice things that, that you didn't notice when you were uh, in the belly of the beast. You start to notice ridiculousness um, about the debate. Um, uh, and I, I remember what, what, one of the editions I wrote about um, a, a, guy, a guy I worked with in, in, in Libya told me a, a, an expression which was um, he said if you if you allow the nose of the camel into the tent soon the whole body of the camel will be in the tent and, and, and what that was about was you allow these small ridiculous ideas to become established and that's what we've done in Scotland and suddenly the bigger ridiculous ideas um, are accepted and for me, really the purpose of that newsletter is trying to, to to sort of shake loose some of these ideas that have become established that are objectively ridiculous. So ideas like the idea that independence is a policy, um, fundamentally, as I said, is about saying there is not a single institution that we can share with the rest of the United Kingdom in a, in a democratic way. right? The D- if we were to share the DVLA with England, it would somehow be, you know, some insult to our, to our nationhood, you know. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's an utterly ridiculous idea. So, so partly ideas like that, partly ideas about the, the politicization of nationhood. I, I, I hate the fact that my, my national identity um, has become a political test rather than um, something beautiful, you know? So I could, I, I, could, I could, for the next, you know, 27 minutes, recite the whole of Tam O'Shanter to you, Matt, right? I, all my holidays are in Scotland. All my holidays are in, are in the Hebrides. Um, I think we're going going abroad with the kids this year for the first time in however long. Um, but, you know, we holiday in Scotland, um, you know, uh, 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 consume Scottish culture uh, avidly. Um, uh, my name, for goodness' sake, is clearly Scottish, um, and yet, despite despite being utterly immersed in this brilliant country, for the government government of my country, I am deemed as not being Scottish. Right? And I think there are things like that, there are ideas like that, that have been established in Scottish politics, um, and, and because we have this kind of hegemonic nationalism that dominates not just our, our our politics but also increasingly our culture we don't step outside of it enough and call out these ridiculous things when they happen um, so it's, yes it's partly as I say a reaction to, to, to a feeling that we're not strong enough in making these arguments but it's also I think because I think it's very difficult to make these arguments and to to step out of the day-to-day fight when you are in politics. Um, and I think that's one of the things I can do by, thankfully, you know, no, 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 no longer still being in a political office at midnight every night.
0: I remember the first time I think I was aware of you, it must have been around 2006, I remember you chairing an event at Millbank and thinking, oh. wow, this guy is going to be a cabinet minister. You know, you were just so impressive. <laughs> And obviously, you know, you fought and won a, a really tight referendum. I mean, a really difficult referendum. Obviously, just so immensely talented, been a special advisor to numerous Labour politicians. I just always presumed your trajectory was, you know, you're going into Westminster and you would be a, a, a star of a, of a Labour government. Now, obviously, politics has gone in a different direction. One of the mm. things often, and maybe this is a very insidery thing to say, but I think one of the tragedies of... the Labour's collapse across the UK. has been that some very, very talented people have not been uh, given the chance, really, to, to have fan- the careers they deserved in politics. Now, to the public, that maybe doesn't matter. Actually, I think it does matter because you want really quality public servants. Hmm. Do you kind of... Does that bother you? Uh, was that your ambition? And um, in a way, are you, do you think you're probably happier for not having done it? Uh, I did try... I did stand. I did stand in
1: my my, my, my home constituency in, in 2017 um, uh, uh, and lost. Um, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved being a candidate. I loved loved spending every day talking to people, and you just learn an enormous amount, an enormous amount. Um, and also after having been, um, you mentioned being a special advisor, being a being a staffer, being a strategist. Um, you don't get to have your own voice and, and you know, literally having your own voice on, on a doorstep every day or standing at a train station talk, talking to voters is just utterly liberating. Um, it's very nice of you to say, say what you say about me. Um, I, I, so I'm not, I, I'll frame this not as about me, but about lots of people. You and I both know dozens of people who are extremely talented, who... Either because of you know because of what's happened in Scotland or the years of Corbynism didn't get the opportunity to uh, to contribute in that way, um, and they're off they're off doing you know very very meaningful jobs all over the place, but they're they're not doing it not doing it for Labour, and I think I think that is a there's a generational gap um, uh, uh, there that I think is only only now starting starting to be filled. Um, I think I am probably a lot happier. Uh, for it, I think politics is is pretty unforgiving. You know, it's pretty. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been lucky in the, the the you know the politicians I've worked for uh, have been kind of the good guys, largely. You know, it's it's people who I, who I respect and like and and, and love. Um, uh, but it's hard. I mean, it is a hard hard uh, life. So I think I'm definitely definitely happier for it. Um, the other thing I'd say is politics. Is, I, I'm a huge, passionate believer in politics, but it's not the only way to make a difference. You know, there are there are lots of lots of the type of people we're talking about, including myself, have gone off and found other ways and other, um, you know, what I would describe as labour causes, um, uh, and they're off making uh, making huge huge changes elsewhere. So, um, but uh, I'd love to I'd love to do it at some point. The time working as a special advisor in government. Um, uh, I look back on that and think I, I did not know I was born. You know the 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 potential we had to do things, the the changes that you were able to make on just a daily basis. Um, you, you take you utterly take it for granted, um, when when you're living it, and it's only you know ten years of <laughs> twelve years now of of opposition across the UK, even longer in Scotland that, that makes you realise how how special that is. Um, so I'd love to be part of that at
0: some point in the future, but how I don't know. And what I mean, if there is another independence referendum at some point, would you say no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no I have done I've done my shift. I've
1: done my shift. Look, I'll help out. obviously it's something something I believe in. Um, but one 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 one, I've done my shift. two, I'd be the wrong person to do it. It needs to be. It needs to be a different sort of, of campaign if it does happen again. Um, but I honestly I don't think it's anywhere close on the horizon anyway. I think we'd be we'd be better. You know, let let me write a blog and the rest of you get on with get on with trying to make politics about politics again.
0: There, yeah, this has been so good. And we we really haven't discussed your time in we're really working for the labor party at all. It's all been very referendum focused, but obviously you just it, it's such an amazing experience. You know, I mean, you were, you were responsible with others for keeping Scotland in the UK. I mean, when you think about a place in history, I don't know if you think about it like that. Maybe it's probably still close to it, but in time, my God, the role you played in British history is huge.
1: Um, well, I don't know about that. I think I think the the campaign certainly. Um, I remember I remember speaking to the staff at the end of the campaign and saying to them, you know. When they were every time they spin a globe for, for the rest of their life, there'll be a, a little island in the um, you know Eastern Atlantic that that's one color rather than two, um, uh, because of because of what they did. Um, for me, for me, the, as I said, the thing I'm really proud of is in a in a time of of nationalism and populism, a time when divisive politics really took over the world. There was this one little moment, you know, uh, where people said, no, people did come together, made what I think was was the rational choice um, uh, on one level, but, you know, on an emotional level also decided that actually people did have more in common than than was different. Um, And I think in what's been a pretty Rubbish decade for for politics all around the world. I I, I do see it as a um, a little bright spark in, in, in what was otherwise a pretty dark time.
0: but this has been superb. Hopefully, we can do one again where we just focus on your time around Labour politics, not to do with the Scottish Constitution. But this has been superb. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. I always feel terrible. Um, at the end of an interview where you've only really focused on one thing. And especially that one thing, obviously for Blair was a huge success and one that he played a leading part in. um, But we didn't really talk about his time with Labour or being a special advisor or working for the party when it was in government. That is a whole other episode that I would love to get him on. But what a phenomenal political judgment. And you know what? so refreshing because whatever side you're on, I think there are so few people Well, I think there are two things. One is having that sort of judgment and having that calm assessment of things and just being able to almost step to the side of what looks like an unwinnable political position and just understand the problems that face your own side and the other side. These things might sound really obvious, but actually, I'm sure you'll have felt this, listen to it. It's actually very rare to hear someone express them in this way. So the first is possessing the the, the grey matter, the second is being able to articulate it, and I just think he articulates it so well and so calmly that it just um, just checks some of those things. You know, that it's very easy to buy into what are perceived to be dominant narratives sometimes, and he is just exceptional at. Um, so actually, that's not the case. You know, in a, in a very very smart way. Um, so that was a masterclass in political framing and strategy and what a treat that was. Thank you for downloading this. Please do leave a five-star review and a written review. It does help other people find it. I know I always ask. I've been asking for years. But the only way to shut me up is for everyone to do it. Imagine if everyone did it this week. Well, we'd be at the top of the charts. Wouldn't that be a lovely place to be? So there you go. Um, and don't forget, you can come and see the live show. My word, the next few guests, Tom Tugendhat, James Cleverley, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rosanna Allen-Kahn, Uh, Rosie Duffield, Lisa Nandy, Gary Neville, David Davies, and loads more to be announced, including, as well, uh, you can come and see me on tour, my new show, Clans to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, coming to Maidstone, Norwich, Cambridge, Edinburgh for two nights, Glasgow, Leicester, Northampton, Bath, Brighton, Eastleigh, two nights in Brighton, actually, Cardiff, Camberley, Peterborough, Maidenhead. Oh, the London Bloomsbury Theatre on Saturday, the 23rd of April. What a treat. Oh, my God, I did that a couple of tours ago. What... A night out, that was. For me, obviously. <laughs> I had a great night out of my own show. Saturday, 23rd of April at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. Uh, Bristol, the Tobacco Factory, that's almost sold out. Leamington Royal Spa, that's almost sold out. There's like five tickets left for some of these. Shrewsbury, the Nottingham Glee Club. Oh, man, on Thursday the 5th of May, I can't wait to gig in Nottingham again. It's been so long. Uh, the Gloucester Guild Hall, York at the Crescent, that has almost sold out. Leeds, Hyde Park, that has sold out. Canterbury. The extra Phoenix and then a run at the London Soho Theatre. But all those um, dates are available to buy on my website, mattford.com, including London Bloomsbury Theatre on the twenty-third of April. All those other dates and the political party live. I shall stop trying to sell you tickets. But again, there's only one way to shut me up about that. Is everyone bought tickets? I wouldn't have to keep promoting it. So there you go. It's time for you to do your bit. See you soon. Ta.